it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we need to move on from learning about Jesus Christ and his salvation to other things uh, you know, in order to maintain our interest in Christianity. It's easy to get caught thinking that way. Uh, just this past week, I talked with a, another pastor from a different church in, uh, in Saskatchewan. It's part of a denomination that is currently causing him much frustration and consternation. He goes to gatherings with other pastors and leaves frustrated by the fact that they don't just open the scriptures and expound it and talk about it. And in his words, this is not that hard, you know, we, we could just do this. Uh, but instead they discuss many other things and, uh, and do all kinds of other things. And they're currently chasing down every, uh, you know, all these different crazy ideas coming out of charismatic camp. And so they're distracted, and they're moving on from Christ in so many ways. But of course, that's not just unique to them. That's not something that just happens to this one denomination, this one group. Departure from focusing on Christ can happen anywhere, and it can happen in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of different forms. And yet, our fundamental need as Christians is to think more upon our God, and to think more about the work of redemption, work of redemption that has been accomplished by our God, to clear away the distractions that come regularly and constantly, and to be encouraged and upheld by coming to his word and examining again, looking afresh at our Savior and at his word. I mean, just, you know this, uh, if you're a believer, you know how quickly distraction comes. You set out one moment, here's what I'm setting my mind upon, you're focused upon it, you can have a wonderful time of reading or fellowship with others or whatever it might be, you're at church, and then very quickly, suddenly you're distracted and you've made a minor shipwreck of your morning or your day, and, and you're amazed at how quickly that, that un, came un, undone. And so we need continually to be reminded of the Lord, to be reminded of our salvation, of Christ, and of who He is, that He stands at the Father's right hand. So consider, for example, the book of Hebrews. The concern throughout that book is a very, very serious concern that's being addressed by the author. The people that are being written, that were written to were tempted to return to Judaism, to abandon Christ, return to Judaism. That's the threat. And so what is it that they needed? What did they need? What was the solution? To dispense with difficult teaching, with theology, Perhaps move on quickly to other things, some sort of charismatic experience, maybe more practical matters is what they needed. Maybe they needed to adopt the latest Roman fad to keep their interest. Uh, perhaps, you know, things were too serious and they needed it to be a little more lighthearted. No, if you're familiar with the book, you know that's not the answer. That's not where the author goes. Instead, the author of Hebrews very solemnly and and, and articulately lays out before their eyes and before their ears the greatness of the Lord Jesus and the salvation that he has wrought. And then he warns them of the consequences of denying this. And so this is continually the, the need of the hour for the Lord's people. And it's amazingly practical to do this and helpful, as well as devotional and uh, doxological. It results in praise. And so as we come to Luke chapter 7, as we continue in Luke chapter 7, I'll invite you to turn there. The question of who is Jesus 
comes again to the, to the fore. And it, of course, in one sense, the entire book of Luke is answering that question. Uh, who, is, who is Jesus? Um, so as we go through the book and as we put it all together, we get a, a, a clearer and fuller picture of who he is. And so in Luke 7, 11 to 23, which we turn to today, uh, we see more of this, more of who Jesus is. We see this both in his actions and what he does in these verses, and also in his instruction, specifically that he gives to John. We see crowds trying to figure this out and react to, to him and, and, and try and figure out who, who he is. Uh, and even we see John the Baptist still wrestling with this question of who Jesus is. So again, we come to this question of who is, who is Jesus? So I invite you to turn with me to uh, Luke 7. We'll start reading in verse 11 to 23. Soon afterward... Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The question of who is Jesus is front and center in this. And so the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the compassionate Lord. He's the compassionate Lord. So verses 11 and 12 provide the setting, provide us the setting of this story. It's in the Galilean town of Nain, which is to, likely to the south, uh, southern part of Galilee. Luke notes that Jesus' disciples are with him and also a great crowd, it says. Uh, this is going to be important, uh, be, I think, because of what is about to happen. So Luke is reminding us here that Jesus' works and his life and these miracles that he did, they didn't happen, as Paul says, in a corner. That is, they weren't hidden for just a couple people to see. No, there were great crowds. There were lots of people around when these things happened. There were lots of people out there that could attest to this. People witnessed these things, and eyewitnesses remained in, during the time of Luke uh, that could testify to these miracles. Uh, certainly the apostles themselves, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but just notice he's, he's pointing out there's, there's a great crowd with him. So then uh, Jesus moves near the gate of this town of Nain, and he sees this funeral procession is taking place. So there's a dead man being carried out of the city gate, 
to be buried outside of the city. That was the normal practice. And it's quite likely that the man had died that very same day, the same day that they come upon this. So, um, you know, they didn't have morgues that would keep the body cool while, you know, people could travel and they could make plans for a funeral. They had to, they had to do this quickly and they had to get the body buried. And so these things moved a lot quicker than they do today. Uh, so this, this is extremely fresh. This, this death is fresh. Uh, likely this is, uh, you know, um, a, a, some sort of tragedy of some kind. Uh, this, that this son is, is, is this man is, is dead. Because we're told the man was the only son of a mother who was a widow. So these two pieces of information, that he's the only son of this lady and that this lady's a widow, are important and they help us understand the difficulty of this lady's situation. She had difficult days ahead of her. There were no more men left in her life to help take care of her, to help her out. Her husband was dead and now her only son is gone as well. And so besides just the pain of losing her son, her child, economic difficulty was ahead of her. Who was going to care for this lady? So again, just notice here in verse 12, second part of verse 12 there, uh, that Luke mentions again there's a great crowd. Uh, There's a lot of people there from the town with her. So the crowd is growing. There's lots of people around to witness what's happening. So this is what this is the setting. This is what they come upon as Jesus and those with him arrive to this this town. It's this very painful, raw moment. And then Luke goes on in verse thirteen to tell us his response, the, the response of Jesus. It says, "And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep.'" So a couple things about this verse. First, notice that Luke calls Jesus the Lord. This is the first time that Luke has applied the title to Jesus in his narration. So, uh, as Luke's writing, he has quoted other people calling Jesus Lord and applying it to him. But but here it's Luke that calls Jesus the Lord. And this is a significant claim. This is an important uh, term, an important title for Luke to use. And while we see people in the book of Luke, in the Gospels, trying to uh, figure out who Jesus is, you know, kind of in real time in these stories. Jesus says something, he does something, and they're trying to piece together uh, some of the picture. For Luke and others who are, you know, Luke's writing this on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, uh, the picture is much clearer for Luke. And so this is not just a term for Luke denoting, uh, you know, uh, that that Jesus is important. Uh, It's much, much more significant than that. The, uh, that Jesus is Lord, for Luke, as he used that term, makes Jesus God, makes him worthy of worship. And in fact, that's, that's how Luke ends his book. If you go to the end of chapter 24, in verse 52, it ends with the, the people worshiping Jesus, which is right because he is Lord. And then in, in Luke's second book, so remember he wrote... Uh, the book of Luke to Theophilus, and then he wrote part two, which is the book of Acts, also to Theophilus. And in that book uh, of, of Acts, uh, this, this title, Lord, is the dominant title for Jesus. He is the risen Lord Jesus. That's who he is. He's not a mere man. He is the supreme Lord of the universe. And he is rightly to be worshipped and to be bowed down to. So he's the Lord. 
But Luke doesn't just call him the Lord. He tells us that the Lord had compassion on this widow. So he said... Those aren't fingers? Okay. Okay. Back to Luke 7. (laughs) So... Jesus is Lord, but not only that, he's compassionate, we're told here. Okay, so th- this is quite remarkable. Um, compassion is, is uh, essentially a synonym for, for mercy. So if we think of the attributes of God, uh, one of the uh, you know, um, overarching categories in terms of his attributes would be the Lord's goodness, uh, his goodness. And then out of his goodness flows his love, flows his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. Uh, this flows out of his goodness. Uh, the theologian Louis Burkhoff defines God's mercy this way. It may be defined as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of deserts. In this mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God who pities those who are in misery and is ever ready to relieve their distress. And this mercy is bountiful. So God has revealed himself not only as supreme and as God and as creator, but also as a merciful God. He tells this to, uh, to, to uh, for example, to Moses. Numerous times, but in Exodus 33, 19, says he, he is a God who shows grace and has mercy on whom he will have mercy. So God is a merciful God. Now, he shows this mercy in many different ways. He shows this mercy in a general sense, in a general way, uh, that, that, that falls on all people. So, for example, Psalm 145.9 says that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So this is part of God's common grace uh, and general goodness toward his creation. He sustains it, and he does this mercifully, in compassion. He he sustains the creation that he has made. So he brings us, for example, much needed rain. Literally, in the last few days, he has brought us much needed rain that we need. This is is a a real act of his compassion and mercy on us. Uh, He he doesn't just uh, set up the world with natural laws and then stand back and just with hands off and we're just kind of at the mercy of random laws. No, he's governing things at all times. And when rain comes, it's an act of his mercy and his compassion. So it's a, it's a real mercy on a people who really do need it, and yet who really we don't deserve it as, as sinners. So God is, is, is merciful to all in that, in that way. But God also shows a particular mercy, a saving mercy, in a special way to those who fear him. So back in Luke 1, 50, um, when... Uh, the song of Mary, she declares, and his mercy, the Lord's mercy, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So that's a, a saving mercy uh, that, that is for those who fear him. That's, that's a little different than just his general mercy to all. And so here Jesus, he sees this, this woman, he sees this funeral procession, he, he sees her distress, he knows she's a widow, this is her only son who's dead, and he, he, in compassion, he comforts her. He first tells her not to weep, uh, but he's also, as we'll, 
we'll see, and as we read, he does much more than that for her as well. He's going to give her her son back. And so in this, in this particular case, in this particular story, um, Jesus is not responding to her faith. Okay? Rather, he's initiating this act. We actually aren't really told much about this lady, besides she's a widow and, and this was her son, that, the only son that has died. We're not really, the, the reaction we see is actually just the general reaction of the people. We're not told exactly how she responded. We're not told anything about the lady's faith whatsoever. We're just told Jesus sees the situation, he has compassion on her, and he just reaches out and, and helps. And so it's a tremendous display of his compassionate mercy. And I think it, it also demonstrates for us that the Lord does not just deal coldly, doesn't just relate coldly with humanity. So the Messiah is merciful. The eternal Son of God would not have come to the earth in the form of a man, would not have become incarnate if it were otherwise, if he were not merciful. Uh, this is, his coming is a tremendous demonstration of God's mercy. And of course, he displays it explicitly here, uh, and Luke tells us explicitly as he uh, reaches out to help this widow, he's, he's doing this out of compassion and mercy. But just the fact that he even came in the first place is a demonstration of God's mercy. So for example, in Luke 1.78, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he declares that this, this uh, visitation of God that's coming in the form of the Messiah he says, it's, he says, it's because of the tender mercy of our God. Why is this all happening? Because our God has tender mercy. He's compassionate. That's why Jesus came, because of God's mercy. And of course, the mercy of God and the work of Christ is most clearly seen at the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, helpless, undeserving, and yet in compassion, the Lord has shown mercy. And so if you know your sinfulness before the Lord, the God of the universe, then this is truly good news that the Lord is compassionate. He's a merciful Lord. And He does not turn away those who know their need of Him, who know their sinfulness before Him, who understand their need for mercy because we're sinners against God. His mercy, in fact, we're told, is for those people. And so if, if you haven't seen your need of this for his mercy, then God's call, the Bible's call for you is to, is to, to see it. He says we, every person is in need of his mercy and grace because we've all sinned against God. And the good news is that the Savior, the Lord Jesus, is compassionate. He provides for all people the needs and joys that they have, and yet in a special way, provides a saving mercy for those that fear him. Listen to 1 Peter 1.3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of that according to his great mercy. So if you believe, you're trusting in Christ, you've been shown tremendous mercy from God.
a compassion which he has initiated. And so praise him for this. Give him thanks for that. In light of his great mercies, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, offer your bodies to him, offer your lives to him as a living sacrifice, as wor- in worship to him. Praise him. Give yourself to him wholly. See that great mercy you've received. Stay the course. If you're here and you're discouraged by things, lift your drooping head. You've been shown mercy by the Lord himself if you're trusting in Christ Jesus. This is good news. This is news to strengthen you. Remember this great mercy you've been shown. Jesus is the compassionate Lord. Secondly, Jesus is the one with authority over life and death. So uh, look at verse 14 with me again. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So Jesus reaches out and touches the bier. Uh, I had to look that word up. But it's, it's basically, some of your translations might say coffin. It's like an open coffin. It's almost more like a stretcher. This person's being carried out of town. It's open. Jesus reaches out, touches it, the, the bearers stop. Ordinarily, reaching out and touching this would cause a ceremonial uncleanness for the one who, who touched the dead body or anything that dead body is laying on, um, but not for Jesus. In fact, this is going to go radically different, very much the other way, the other direction. This man's going to be made whole. And Jesus does this by simply speaking, by saying the word. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. If you remember from last week in verse 7, the centurion, he requested that Jesus come and, and heal, his, uh, heal his servant, the servant that he loved. And, um, and, and if you'll remember, Jesus goes on his way toward them, and then a second delegation comes from this man, the centurion. He says, don't, you don't even need to come. Uh, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He understood this power of Jesus to heal his servant. He didn't need to touch him, didn't need to be present. He just needed to say the word and it would happen. And here we see this powerful word also governs life and death. The man, Luke writes it, I think kind of, I mean, it's it's kind of humorous. I don't know if he means it to be, but the dead man sat up and spoke. That does not happen. Dead people don't do that. Obviously, he's made alive, he sits up, and he talks, he speaks. I mean, this, we, again, if you've grown up in church, you read these things, and you just kind of, they become, you're just so used to it, but it's a remarkable power. I mean, there's nothing else like it. Life and death controlled by the word of Jesus, by speaking. And that changes how we think of him. That should. It changes how we approach him. Not as casual. He's the Lord, and he controls life and death simply by speaking. He raises this man. This passage mirrors uh, the passage that was read earlier from 1 Kings 17, uh, where Elijah there uh, raises a widow's son, a widow's only son, uh, who had died. But there, as we read, Elijah, he prays. He calls out to the Lord. He asks the Lord for help. He asks the Lord to have mercy on this widow. And so there, very clearly, it's the Lord's power. It's not Elijah's. uh, It's the Lord's. But here, 
The power is rep- it's Jesus. He's the one with the power. It's his word that accomplishes this. So it's, it, it's different. It's definitely different than what we see with Elijah, though there are similarities. Likewise, elsewhere uh, in, in the book of Acts, for example, we see the apostles and, and do miraculous uh, things there and even dead people raised. But there, clearly, again, the power is the Lord Jesus. They do these things in his name. He's the one with the power. He's the one doing these things through his apostles, through these people. And so uh, the power belongs to the Lord. It still belongs to Jesus. Also, I'll just, I'll just say this. Remember what I've already said, that, that large crowds were gathered here. There was a large crowd with Jesus when they arrived. There was a large crowd with the funeral procession. Everybody's there when this occurs. Okay, so again, when Acts, in Acts 26, Peter's before Agrippa, and he's telling him the things that happened in Jerusalem, the things about Jesus, and you remember he said to him, you know these things. They did not happen in a corner. These things are not secret. They weren't hidden. Uh, it's not some random tale that oh, nobody witnessed, but, you know, trust me, he did great things. No, these things were out in, in plain sight, in plain view. In fact, Jesus... Powerful works were, were not even disputed by his enemies, by those who, who hated him and disliked him. They just try to attribute his power to dark forces, uh, to, to Satan himself. Uh, he must be in league with Satan, because they can't deny the things that are happening, the things that these people are seeing, uh, and so they attribute it to a, a dark power. And, and despite what, um, you know, despite modern sentiment, uh, these people in the first century, they were not predisposed to just believe these sorts of, of reports, to just believe these sorts of stories. Um, th- that's, that's a modern view. We, we, te- we think, you know, uh, we've maybe bought into the evolutionary idea that, you know, centuries ago, man was, you know, not smart. And now, look where we've come. We're much smarter. And we've, we've much improved since, you know, the first century. But that's, that's evolutionary theory that's not scripture. Uh, it's not true. They weren't, they weren't gullible. They were like us, similar brains in a lot of ways. I'm sure much more intelligent than me and some of us. And so they weren't just like, oh, they just hear a, you know, a story about someone raising someone from dead and they just, oh, well, of course, you know, they, it's not just something they were predisposed to believe. They were, they were like us. And so my point in saying that is that this, is, this has always been a very, very radical claim. Uh, this this is this is not um, just you know it's not something we should view as as kind of embarrassing like ah oh, well you know we don't, that kind of thing doesn't really normally happen no it's true it doesn't normally happen and that's what makes this so impressive and so amazing is that the Lord Jesus did do this and that eyewitnesses did witness these things and pass these things down to us and this is what Luke is compiling and reporting to Theophilus and to whoever reads to to encourage us in our faith. So Jesus literally raised a dead man in this incident, demonstrating his power and authority. I mean, this is the one we need on our side. If you you have somebody in your corner, this is the one you want. This is the one you need. Further, this, this raising of this dead person, this dead man, further illustrates for us what it is Jesus does for everyone who trusts in him. He takes those who are dead and are trespasses and sins, and he raises us to a new life. 
gives us new life. This is the picture of a lost and sinful world, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 makes clear. And when somebody, the lights come on and someone believes in the Lord Jesus and trusts in him for salvation, it's like he's raised a dead person. That's exactly the picture that Ephesians 2 makes clear. So this illustrates that for us. Moreover, one day Jesus will raise all who trust in him, all who believe in him, will raise us bodily at the end. Upon his return, the dead in Christ, Paul says, will rise imperishable with glorified bodies. So technically, uh, this rising from the dead here that we see in Luke 7, uh, as with Lazarus, as with the girl in, in Luke 8 that we'll get to in, in Whenever we get to it, uh, these are technically not resurrections. Uh, that phrase might be used sometimes, but technically this isn't resurrection, but it's more of a resuscitation. The resurrection is different. It's a different thing. To be resurrected is to be raised with an imperishable and a glorified body. And that is a, something that is yet to happen. Yet to, That's at the end when the Lord Jesus returns. But these instances where Jesus does breathed life into dead people when he was walking on earth, these foreshadow that great day. They foreshadow the final resurrection. And Jesus makes it explicit in John chapter 11. You can, you can go uh, read there later. When he, when he heals Lazarus, when he raises Lazarus, he says there, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's, it's an illustration. So Jesus didn't come into the world the first time to raise everyone from the dead. Right? That's not what he did. Uh, we know of three times that he did this. But these acts of compassion point us to the fact that obviously he's powerful and he's able to raise dead people. It shows us that he has power over death. It vindicates the, his claims of who he is. It shows us that he can be trusted. We can and we should confidently place ourselves and our eternity in his hands. He can take dead sinners and raise us, you know, give us spiritual life, and he will one day raise us physically to be with him eternally in the new heavens and new earth. This, this, this foreshadows that, what we see happening here. He is, as he says in John 11, the resurrection and the life. This is, that's what he told he, he's, before he raised Lazarus, he was talking with Martha, and he, and he tells her there that he is the resurrection and the life, and, he, and, and, and it's clear in John 11 that when he raises Lazarus, it's an illustration of the fact that he's one day going to come and raise all who are trusting in him uh, in, in, the, in the final resurrection. And so this, this story here shows us the tremendous power and authority that Jesus holds. And so he is the one... That, that, that we need. He's the one that you can and, and ought to trust. He has authority over life and death. Thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament points to. That's not a terribly clever point, but I think that's what this is getting at. So Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament and all the scriptures point to. All right, verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout, through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
So here's where now the issue and the question of who is Jesus really becomes um, more explicit in this text. The crowd responds here appropriately with fear or awe. In fact, we're told that the fear sees them. It's like it reaches out and grabs hold of them, and, 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 and they're in awe of what has just happened. And they worship God. And they say, a great prophet has arisen. Now, I, I, I take this to be a genuine statement. I think they truly worship God here. But this declaration about Jesus, while true, he's a great prophet, falls short, really, of, of who he truly and really is. So I, th- so I think they're, they're making an accurate statement, but there's a lot more that really should be said. Uh, he's much more than a great prophet. Right? Elijah was a great prophet. Jesus is, is certainly much more than that. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, he prophesied about a prophet that would come one day and who would be greater than Moses. So he prophesies about this, this, this one who's going to come this, he's going to be the great prophet who's going to come one day. And, if, and Jesus is that, that prophet. So, so really, he's not just a prophet, but the great prophet who was to come. So the, pe- the people add, he's a great prophet, they add on top of that that God has visited his people. So again, this is true, um, but I think it's much more than you know, God visiting them through a prophet. Uh, rather, the Lord himself has come to them in human flesh. And it's unclear if that's what they mean when they say God has visited us. It might just be, you know, that God, they, they think, oh, here's a great prophet. God has visited us by, by sending us this great prophet. Um, but it's much more than that. Uh, this is the Lord himself in human form there, standing right there. So in Malachi 3.1, uh, if you were here on Wednesday, we talked about this. The Lord said that he was coming 430-ish, 400 years before this uh, took place in Luke 7. The Lord had said through Malachi that he was coming to visit the people. The Lord was coming to his temple. This was this great visitation that had been predicted that they were waiting upon for these 400 years. And now it was happening. The Lord was here. The great, the great prophet had arisen. And Emmanuel... God with us, had come. And so the crowd responds, I think truthfully, although perhaps it's incomplete, and this word begins to spread, and we see that it reached John the Baptist. So uh, keep reading with me in verse 18. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one? Who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John's disciples, they they report to him what was going on. As word spreads out from Maine, these disciples hear these things, and, and they go report. 
And it may be, I think it's likely, that they report that the crowds are saying he is a prophet. He's a great prophet who has arisen. John hears what the people are saying. He's a great prophet. So then the question is, is he a great prophet or is he the great prophet? Is he the one? So likely that has reached its way to John. Uh, combined with that, um, perhaps John's expectation of what would happen when Jesus comes. So if you remember what Jesus or what John the Baptist preached, we talked about this back in chapter 3. Uh, in verse 9, John was preaching, uh, he, he preached, The axe is laid at the root of the trees. And he said, uh, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he preached repentance. He preached a coming judgment. Uh, the Lord is coming. And he preached judgment was coming. And so, I think there's a good chance John is, is, is hearing what Jesus is doing and perhaps wondering, where is this judgment? The judgment is delayed. Uh, it hasn't come yet. Perhaps it's not what John expected. And so, where is this judgment? Is, is this the one to come? Or should they await somebody else? And so there's some measure of uncertainty due to John's, I think, expectations of what Jesus appearing would look like. He's expecting judgment right away. And so here's this request for some clarification. And so this delegation asks Jesus uh, if he's the one who is to come. Which, which really, I mean, we could say it another way. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one the Old Testament pointed to? Are you that one? Clearly he's a great prophet, but is he the one? And then to summarize Jesus' answer, the answer is yes. Yes, I am the one. And so to summarize what he says, he says to tell John that I'm, that I'm doing the things that the Old Testament said that the coming one would do. I'm doing the things that the Bible says the Messiah is going to do. Uh, even though it's maybe not exactly what John envisioned, uh, I am that one, Jesus is saying. So in verse 21, we're told that as they come in that very hour, he was healing many people, uh, giving sight to blind people. And so these delegates from John come to him, and he tells them to report to John what they have seen and heard. Namely, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What are these statements? Behind these, these, uh, these statements he's just made, these six things he's just said are, are happening, um, are, are, are verses in the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, uh, as he paints a picture of uh, the servant um, who is going to come and bring about this great redemption that the Lord was going to work, uh, this Messiah that's going to come, uh, as he paints this picture of what this is going to look like, uh, he uses these, these phrases that Jesus refers to here. So, for example, uh, one clear place is Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, where Isaiah writes, Then, on that day when this redemption occurs and this, this person comes and, and brings about the, the Lord's redemption, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Elsewhere, Isaiah 26, 19, there he references um, dead coming to life, the dead living. Uh, and then uh, further, Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, 
which, if you'll remember, Jesus' very first words in the book of Luke, back in chapter 4, when we were there, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and then he sits down and he says, this day these things are fulfilled in your hearing. What was in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2? Well, among the things there was the fact that the good news, or that the poor had good news preached to them. So that's one of, the, one of the things Jesus tells John here is taking place. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying to John that he, that Jesus, is fulfilling these scriptures. He is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. He is doing the work of Isaiah's servant, the Messiah that would come. If he is who Isaiah talked about, then he is who the entire Old Testament pointed ahead to. And he is calling John to trust him with this. John may not even understand it all. He might wonder why it is he's languishing in prison, which he was at this point. But he is to trust the Lord. Jesus is, in fact, this one. He is this person. And then Jesus adds in verse 23, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To be offended uh, means to stumble over him. To stumble over him to one's ruin. Earlier, if you remember, we read that Jesus is appointed for the rising and falling of many. He's the rock of stumbling to many. There are those who hear him, they rejoice, they're not offended by him, they're blessed, Jesus says, and there are those who hear him, who hear what he's come to do, who hear his teaching, and they despise him. They stumble over him. They're dashed against the rock. And so though the judgment that John proclaimed, there's a coming judgment, it wasn't immediate, but one's response to Jesus is in fact determinative of their future. Responding to him in repentance and faith, blessedness, taking offense at him, stumbling over him, it's ruin. It's ruin. It's condemnation. So when Jesus says again, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, he's showing that he is, in fact, the one who is to come. Response to him is what matters most, above all. It means everything. So Jesus is the long-awaited hope for the world. For Jew, for Gentile alike, his first arrival may not have been exactly what a lot of people expected it to look like. Maybe didn't, the timeline wasn't exactly what they thought it would be, but he is the one. He's affirming that here to John, and he's calling John to trust him. This might not be what you would expect of a Savior. If you were drawing this up, this maybe isn't what, what you would think he should look like. But he is the one. He is the long-awaited seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, reverse the curse of the fall. That blow was delivered at the cross where Jesus redeemed and purchased for himself his people. And it will be completed when he returns and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is the one who brings good news of salvation to the poor. For those who know their spiritual poverty. For such there is good news of forgiveness. There's reconciliation with God Almighty through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant who Isaiah said would come and be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
He is the one who will bring about the final judgment of God on the earth, preserving his own and eternally condemning the wicked. He will usher in the eternal state in which God will dwell with his people in the new Jerusalem forever. He's the only hope for us, for you, for the entire world. There is no other. And so blessed is the one who is not offended by him. He is the one we need. Do you, do you see him? With eyes of faith, do you see that? Do you see your need for him? Cling to him. He is the one you need. There is no other hope of glory. There is no other Savior coming. Except our returning Lord. He is the one we need. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your mercy, for your compassion that you show your creation every moment. With each breath, we are sustained by you in your mercy and in your compassion. And Father, we know our, our great need for further mercy, our need to be pardoned of our debts against you, to be pardoned of our sins and iniquity. And so we praise you for your compassion, that you sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, that in your mercy you reach down and, 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 and bring to life dead sinners such as ourselves. We have no other hope than that you would be compassionate and merciful. And so we praise you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, to work this salvation, to work this great act of mercy on our behalf. We have no other hope. Father, we, we, need, we need to behold the greatness of our Lord Jesus at every moment. Father, would you strengthen us now with these, with these truths that we've looked at. Help us to love you more as a result of your mercy to us. Help us to cling all the more tightly to the Lord Jesus. Help us to forsake sin. Help us to battle and war and put to death the deeds of the flesh. And may we, in light of your great mercy to us, be all the more willing and desirous to offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices. Thank you that we can do this because of your great work of redemption. Father, I pray we would not get bored with the gospel, bored with Christ, bored with church, bored with your scriptures. Father, forgive us for when those moments have come. We pray that you would mercifully be sanctifying our hearts and setting us apart to be even more like Christ. And we anticipate and look forward to that day when Christ will return and will give us resurrected bodies and raise us with glorified bodies to dwell with you forever. This is our hope. We have no other. And we give you thanks for it. We pray that as we seek to share it with others around us, that many, many more would come to understand this great hope and place their faith in Christ alone. We pray that you would receive all the honor and glory for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.